When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, Eric Bischoff here, and have you heard about Strictly Business? Strictly Business is a brand new weekly series exclusively on adfreeshows.com. Join me and my co-host John Alba every Tuesday as we take a deep dive into the business of the professional wrestling business. And this is some straight up business talk here, no fanboy nonsense. We discuss television contracts, advertising, licensing, and, of course, the highly debated ratings. So if you want an unfiltered, brutally honest, anti-fanboy understanding of the professional wrestling industry, well, Strictly Business is the series for you. And, hey, if Elon Musk likes my tweets, and he did, you're going to love Strictly Business. Sign up now. And listen at adfreeshows.com. Do you love wrestling podcasts but hate all the ads? Well, you can get all the great podcasts early and ad-free at adfreeshows.com. It only starts at nine bucks a month, but you get exclusive series at adfreeshows.com like Title Chase, Eric Fires Back, Conversations with Conrad, and tons more, and a chance to interact with your favorite podcast hosts every month. See for yourself why thousands of other wrestling fans say adfreeshows.com is the best value in wrestling. Adfreeshows.com. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help. And you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender, savewithconrad.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? So good, it scares me. Just awesome. That's great to hear. Glad to hear it. Well, I'm, uh, uh, you know, Mother's Day is tomorrow as we're recording this on a Saturday. So uh, the weather's nice, and I'm going to clean my grills. I'm going to take the big green egg apart. And I'm going to thoroughly clean it and get it ready for the summer, as well as my shiny new rec tech that's in my garage. And I'm going to get them in pristine condition so that I can begin my summer grilling adventures. Really looking forward to it. 
man, I, I don't know that you and I could have much more in common, but man, me and you and Jr. we're like peas in a pot on those grills, dude. Uh, Megan and I are grilling out every day and uh, have been for a while. And I'm, uh, I'm excited that you're going to be joining the club, man. Cause when we, we did a little vacation together a few months ago and on the way there, you said, man, one of the things I'm looking forward to the most is grilling. Now they didn't have a rec tech and that makes everything a lot easier, but still, uh, grilling season's fun. It is. It just changes everything. Cause you're out there, you're participant, right? You're, you're, you're part of that process and so just the smell and the anticipation. And it's just such a fun thing to do. And I know I sound like a, you know, an old guy and, you know, looking forward to grilling the steak, but I, I don't know, man, the whole process to me is like, when you have that kind of, when I have that kind of relationship with the things that I eat, it's why I like to cook. It's why I like to hunt and fish is, you know, yeah, I'll go out and eat and have stuff to deliver occasionally and all that kind of stuff out of convenience. And sometimes you need that, but man, when I have the time on my hands and can just spend an afternoon, crank up some music, get a couple cold beers on ice and spend some time outside grilling. That to me is about a perfect day. Hard to beat man. Hard to beat. And so will today's episode. Of course, we're coming to you live from the blue chew studios. Glad to be here with you today and doing something that might actually be one of my favorite things we get to do here on the podcast, ask Eric anything. And, uh, we really opened the floodgates. We've got, I don't know, man, like 12 pages worth of questions. I don't think there's any way we'll get to them all, but let's jump right into it. Uh, Instagram, a wrestling historian wants to know, how did you get WCW to turn a profit in 95 after you made that bet? What was your strategy? Um, well, there were two things really. One was, and obviously, you know, Nitro had a little bit to do with that. And even though it was late in 95 when that show um, aired uh, or premiered, but really what people, you know, fail to, to um, include in the narrative of WCW's history, or at least my relationship and management with it was the first two or three years, it was all about cutting costs. It was all about controlling expenses you know, I've told the story before, I won't tell it again, but making sure that people in the company were intimately aware of their resources and the expenditure of those resources. So for the first really two years of my management experience, all of my focus was on cutting costs. You know, I, I attacked travel first because it was the biggest black hole of expense that was just so mismanaged and, and abused. You know, people were taking advantage of it um, a lot. Um, that was the first thing I attacked and, and really, you know, eliminating house shows because they weren't profitable. All of those were really controversial things that I did. Some of them controversial internally. You know, I even went so far and I proposed this and I got shut down. It was one of the only times I really got shut down by Turner management was I wanted to change our company policy so that WCW received the frequent flyer mileage mm. from the tickets that we paid for. And I still believe that's fair to this day. Yeah. You're you know, paying. If, so. I'm, if I'm paying for the ticket then I want the benefits, but if somebody else is, paying, if you flew me somewhere and said, Eric, I'm going to, we're going to start stacking, you know, frequent flyer, flyer mileage for ad free shows so we can manage our expenses so that when we're doing all these live events around the country and in some cases around the world, well, if ad-free shows is paying for my plane ticket, then ad-free shows should get the benefits of the frequent flyer mileage. Yeah. So you could help control those expenses. 
I'd, I'd, I'd be an advocate for that. And that was my same thing at, at Turner Broadcasting. I, you know, I looked at how much money we were spending in travel every month. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. We could reduce travel by 30, 35% if we could start taking advantage of frequent flyer fire. And I, I was going to do it. And internally inside of WCW, yeah, there was a lot of people that were bitching about that. But it got shut down at Turner and it got shut down at Turner because the rest of the companies within Turner would have put up a bitch. So nope, didn't get that one better. But that was it, really. It was a combination of reducing expenses and increasing revenue just like it would be if you had a hot dog stand, you know, you, you want to control your expenses and increase your revenue. It's a pretty simple formula. And I'm not a finance guy. You know, I didn't come up that way. And and even in my personal life, you know, managing my personal finances has never been one of my strongest suits. And I knew that, but to me, it was really simple, man. Just cut your costs and increase your revenues and you're going to get where you want to get. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there's always been two options. We can go make more or we can spend less and in a perfect world. We do both. sounds like that's what you did. That was the approach. Uh, Josh Rosenbaum, coach Rosie, big friend of the show says, uh, could a program like Lucha underground work today? I liked the show because of the interesting storylines. What do you think? You know, Lucha was a Lucha Underground was a really interesting experience. And um that was Mark Burnett, by the way, you know, the guy who really brought Survivor. He didn't create Survivor. The format already existed internationally, but he he Mark Burnett brought that format to the United States and and turned it into something really special, obviously. But Mark Burnett took a he was Mark was always interested in and I've worked a little bit with Mark. You know, Mark and I developed a, a show together. At one point, a NASCAR uh, reality show that was going to uh, feature Jeff Gordon and his his father. But um, it Lucha Underground, I love the experiment. I love the way the backstage segments, you know, evolved and told the story. But I think it was a little too much. Too it was too radically different from what the the wrestling audience had experienced. Do I think something like that would work today? I think with some modification, yes. And by the way, it was really expensive to produce, but with some modification, yeah, but it would be, you know, wrestling is, you know, if you're not AEW or you're not WWE, you know, on a high profile upper tier cable platform, it's a niche of a niche, you know, wrestling is still a niche product. Mm -hmm. It's, it is what it is. It's a big niche, but it's a niche. Uh, Lucha would be a niche of a niche. Could it work on certain platforms? Sure. Um, It could be viable and financially successful, but it would be on a very, very small scale. It wouldn't be something that could possibly compete with AEW or with WWE. That will never happen, but it could still be financially viable. How much of that do you think is because we as wrestling fans are conditioned for live, 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 you know, these shows were, were pre-produced and recorded and, you know, in the can and uh, for a long time. And it feels like the, the content that wrestling fans gravitate to, and it's been this way for as long as I can remember is the live stuff. And when now this is taped and, and we live in an internet age where everybody wants spoilers and scoops and what have you. It just doesn't feel quite as exciting if it's recorded. How big of a piece do you think that is uh, as a detriment to that sort of concept? 
I, I think with, with with something as niche as a Lucha Underground would be, because it would be targeted to a very specific audience, I don't think it would have to be live. The, the challenge with Lucha was the, again, it, it, I haven't had enough coffee yet, but you, you want to make, even if you're doing live to tape, meaning basically you're taping the show, but you're making it feel live. Right. If you can achieve that, you can overcome the fact that you're not live because you're producing it in such a way that makes it feel live. I don't think the giving away the finishes and spoiler alerts and all that, I don't think that's the biggest challenge. I think the biggest challenge is convincing people that are watching it that it is live when it isn't. And that's where Lucha had a problem because the the way they, they shot a very they took a very cinematic approach to a lot of the dialogue you know the backstage scenes i loved like, it by the way story. it's just so different i don't think wrestling fans were ready for it and that's what that's what i was trying to say earlier on it just was so different than what the audience was accustomed to that it took them out of that live feeling even though it wasn't a live show the matches were produced live to tape you couldn't tell by watching the matches whether they were live or not but the minute you took the audience backstage into that traditional kind of cinematic version or, or, or a, a typical television version of a backstage scene, you jolted the audience out of the experience. You took them from one experience into another experience, right? And those two experiences were so drastically different from each other that the audience at home just felt disconnected from it. That was the challenge with that type of format. But I think if you produced it live to tape and you produced your backstage segments so they felt live, even though they weren't, I think you'd be fine. It is weird, though, because at times it didn't feel like, well, this isn't wrestling, but it's not really a TV show. It's kind of neither fish nor foul. But I love right. the concept, man, and, and I hope they can figure it out. Um, I really do. and. It almost feels like Lucha Underground might have been the closest we've seen uh, to, I don't know, like comic books meets wrestling. Would you agree with that? Yeah. 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 I would. And, and again, you hit it right on the head without knowing really that you did, but there were, it was like a clash of formats. Is this a drama series or is this a wrestling show? Yeah. It's a wrestling show. No, it's a drama series. You know, it, 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 yeah. I, I think it could work if they would have shot those backstage. They were overproduced for what the wrestling audience experience would, would expect. And I think it could work. Did you know that I actually, uh, I talked to them. I talked to the folks at Lucha Underground about possibly coming in early on before the show launched. No, I had no idea. Yeah. I, I met with them uh, twice actually. And I met with, you know, the, the folks from AAA who were also a part of it, the executives that were part of it. And there was a moment that I was actually thinking about becoming uh, the executive producer of that show along with Mark Burnett, but it just, it, it, it didn't feel right to me. And I don't think I was able to convince them that I was, and I wasn't the right person for that job. I just wasn't, I didn't have enough of a feel for the Lucha culture and experience to be able to do the, the kind of job that, that, that format needed. But uh, yeah, we had some early discussions. And like I said, I had worked with Mark Burnett, Mark Burnett before. Uh, so I had a good relationship with Mark, but what whatever. What do you think of Dorian? Well, nobody really talks about that, but you know he's sort of the guy at the helm for AAA, and 
Lord, what a legacy they've gotten in, 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 I don't even know how many decades of wrestling now, sort of the WWE of Spanish speaking countries. What, what was your read on Dorian? You know, I never, I, I didn't get to know Dorian well enough. It's not like we went out and had dinner and, and, you know, had a lot of opportunity to get to know each other. Um, I was in, I think one, possibly two meetings with Dorian and people that Dorian worked with. My impression was that he's a very, very um, sophisticated entertainment executive. I mean, he, he wasn't just a wrestling guy. Um, he had a vision, a very, very cool guy, um, smart. You know, I classy, I guess, is the word that comes to mind. At least yeah. that was my experience uh, with him. So nothing but, uh, you know, positive things to say. Well, we're pulling for him. Uh, I heard through the grapevine. I didn't know this, but uh, a while back that they actually had, you know, some, some Marvel opportunities too. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty valuable relationship to have, you know, sort of merging that that wrestling and comic book world. And, and by the way, speaking of comic books, uh, our friends at D wolf comics are your source for legendary action. Step into the world of epic action and surprise with the writer Russ Nodell as the creative mind behind D wolf comics undead row. His debut creation incorporates action, suspense, and horror with a little conspiracy mixed in to keep things interesting. A death row inmate on the verge of execution agrees to subject himself to an experimental drug test created by the military. This successful test creates a zombie outbreak inside the prison that now must be contained before it reaches the outside world. Then in the gripping comic book series of Lilith, one guardian angel decides to fall not only to protect the earth that has descended into now lawlessness but to ensure that those who have caused the needless pain and suffering pay for it. While she fights crime, she discovers she must also keep her own inner demon at bay. Visit dwolfcomics.com today to find out how the story unfolds. That's dwolfcomics.com. Use the code 83weeks and get 10% off your entire order. That's dwolfcomics.com. And the promo code 83weeks will get you 10% off. So, you happen to be a wrestling fan and a comic book fan support our man at dwolfcomics.com. Uh, no, see, that's interesting. And, and I, I don't know how many comic cons you've been to. Um, I remember going to my, the first time I got booked to go to a comic con, I was like, Oh, why, you know, I, why comic? That's a whole different world. It's not, I went to, and I don't remember what comic con it was. I think it was in Toronto was the first one that I went to. And I, you know, I, sign on and i sold a so signed a ton of autographs at a comic con which surprised me and then i walked around you know because you got to get up and walk around just stretch your legs a little bit a couple times a day and i get up and i'd walk around there's a huge comic con and i was blown away by how many people recognized me you know again i've been on tv in a long time really uh, on a regular basis and i look a little bit different now than i did you know back in the 90s obviously but um Man, I think that those two worlds, the comic book world and the wrestling world are so closely related, but there just hasn't been yet that real bridge between the two. And maybe our friends are onto something here. I hope so. And, and Dorian as well. You talked about Dorian and Marvel. There's a connection there. Somebody just needs to make it happen. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget 
and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Uh, Michael is trying to make it happen. He wants to know what was it like working with Randy Orton? Of course, everybody's talking about Randy right now. Just mm-hmm. celebrated such a milestone here within the company. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable. The run he's been on now forever. You know, it's funny. The first time I met Randy was shortly after I think I started in WWE as a talent. And, and Randy was new on the scene as well. I don't know why, but he and I just always clicked. You know, the chemistry was just there. He was, he was very, uh, I don't want to say respectful, but yeah, I can't think of a different word and a classy young man. And as time went on, as he got more and more experience and, you know, was elevated within WWE, um, we just always got along, you know, we're not buddies. I don't call them up, hang out or, you know, text back and forth or anything like that. But whenever I see him, um, I'm, I'm always happy to see him. I always feel like he's pretty happy to see me. I get along with his dad. Great. I've hung out with his dad a lot. You know, I've, I've been on a couple, uh, uh, signings and events with his dad and he feels um, like your kind of guy. He is man. We hung out one night. We went back, you know, everybody else, you know, went to the hotel bar and, you know, hung out. And Bob and I just went up to Bob's room uh, with Scott Norton and we just hung out the three of us and uh, drank copium, copious amounts of beer and had a wonderful time. But I, I think, I think a lot of Randy, I think Randy is, you know, you, you look at everybody in the industry today as talent. And I think Randy is by far probably one of the best amongst his peers currently. And, and you can go back 20 years and try to find somebody that's better than Randy Orton. I want to hear that name. He's fluid. He's believable. He's versatile. He's a natural in the ring. He's so natural. And just everything he does seems so effortless because he's that damn good at it. And, you know, next time you watch, not you, Conrad, because I know you you're, you're very much into this, but if you're a passive wrestling fan and you just like watching wrestling, but you don't sit back and analyze it and critique it. Like, you know, people in the dirt sheet wrestling community community do just watch Randy's facial expressions. Even when he's not doing anything that's really important, he's not in the middle of a seriously dramatic moment or intense moment. The little things that Randy does, he does so well that you don't really notice them but you find yourself getting sucked into whatever he's doing. And that's the mark of a really, really polished performer. Tommy wants to know in the nitro book, it's implied that the beginning of your downfall was the switch from bill Shaw to Harvey Schiller. In your opinion, is that accurate? 
or do you feel you worked best under one and not the other? Um, a lot of things changed when Harvey Schiller came in and anytime there's change, there's, you know, bumps in the road, right? You're getting used to each other. You know, Harvey Schiller had a much different management style and leadership style than, than Bill Shaw did. You know, Harvey Schiller was a colonel in the Air Force in a military background. Um, he approached things differently than Bill Shaw, who was the VP of Human Resources. So you have a, two distinct, you know, management styles there and experiences. There were some, there were some minor bumps along the way, but within a very short period of time, Harvey and I developed a, a very good working relationship. I, I respected Harvey a lot. Harvey was a macro manager, not a micro manager, which I was surprised. I thought when I heard about Harvey and I read about his experience and who he was and where he came from and all that, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, working for an ex-military officer in the entertainment business, especially in the wrestling business is going to be a real challenge. It wasn't because Harvey, like I said, he was a macro manager. Um, Bill, Bill was more of a mentor. I, I, I really enjoy, obviously I enjoyed working for Bill. He's the one that gave me my opportunity. So the relationship started off very differently than the relationship between Harvey and I. Um, Bill was really good at his job. Bill knew what my strengths were, I think. Um, but he also knew what my weaknesses were. And more importantly, he knew what my weaknesses were. And Bill immediately started to mentor me through those weaknesses and, and helping me to be aware of them and learn how to improve upon those areas. Uh, I think had I had Bill Shaw stayed in the position he was in and stayed in control of WCW, um, I don't think the outcome would have been any different. At the end of the day, it wasn't Bill Shaw. It wasn't Harvey Schiller. It wasn't even Eric Bischoff. It wasn't even, well, it was WCW. There were people that took control of Turner Broadcasting who had a much different opinion of professional wrestling than Ted Turner did. Ultimately, that was it. And it wouldn't have mattered who was in charge. Um, But I think if I would have had the opportunity to work for Bill a little bit longer and polished my corporate approach, I, I would have probably had a different experience. It would have changed the outcome, but it would have had a different, I wouldn't have been as combative. I mean, you know, I, I took a baseball bat to whatever management conflicts I had with the people above me. Um, that was the wrong approach, clearly. Um, but there were just two different people, but I, th- no, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's an accurate perception. Um, do you think that was the beginning of my downfall? It was the beginning of Turner's downfall. You know, Turner collapsed as a result of the merger, in my opinion, but not because of any situation between Harvey Schiller and myself. When you were just saying, you know, you took a baseball bat to some of those management conversations and things like that, you know, that's pretty self-aware that you're able to go back and, and be that honest about it and critical of yourself. But do you think that was just maturity? At the time? Or what do you chalk that up to? 
Cause obviously you're older and wiser and we hear that phrase all the time, but you know, we recently saw Cody Rhodes do an interview where he said, Hey, I was thrust into a position of management and I, and in hindsight, I probably wasn't mature enough for that yet. And I thought, wow, that's pretty self-aware and evolved to be able to recognize that in yourself. And when you're saying mm, in hindsight, that probably wasn't the right call the way I handled management. So I'm just curious from your perspective, why do you think you had that approach it, it, or do you just chop well, because it, it worked for me? Okay. <laughs> because up until it stopped working for me, it worked for me very well. Um, you know, again, you'd have to really, you, you would have have to have been in WCW in 91 and 92 and 93 to understand just how messed up it was. And I was very aggressive. You know, when I say I took a baseball bat, I was very, I was not deferential to people above me. You know, I was respectful, but I wouldn't, I didn't allow them to get away with stupid shit. You know, my first, you know, my first, the first example that is, is Bob Dew. You know, Bob Dew is my boss until he wasn't. And the reason he wasn't is because I was really aggressive because Bob was wrong. Bob's management of, of live events and the things that he was directly responsible for. He wasn't directly responsible for television. I was, but Bob was responsible for the operations of WCW, including the fucked up travel and all the other things that went with it. And the live event strategy that was not a strategy. It was just throwing money out the window. Um, we got to the point where we ended up in a sit down. It was me, Bob Dew and Bill Shaw. And it got ugly. And then Bob Dew got let go. You know, that's one example. I was very aggressive and it worked. And that worked for me for a long time because here, here's what it was. And it was lack of experience. I don't think it was maturity. I was, you know, 40 some years old. I wasn't a kid. You know, Cody's still pretty young. But it was my first corporate position. I'd never worked for corporation before. I certainly never been a president of a division of a publicly held company before. And it's a different culture. And when Ted was in power, one of the reasons that I got aggressive with people is because I knew if it ended up in a stalemate, I knew I'd be sitting in front of Ted. Right. And I was pretty confident that I would win. So that strategy of being aggressive and taking a baseball bat with me to meetings sometimes, literally, obviously, <laughs> but you know, was it worked, and I made a lot of progress. And WCW's you know position improved dramatically until it didn't. <laughs> and when there's a management change, and you know, here I am thinking, all right, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring my bat. I'm gonna be confrontational. I'm gonna call people out when they say stupid shit or suggest things that are. And it's not like I was mean about it. But I would point out, you know, I'm not going to tell the whole story here, but, you know, one, another example, sitting in a room full of people that knew nothing about my business, absolutely nothing about WCW, nothing about its history, knew nothing about what it took to get WCW where it was. We're talking about 1998, had no idea of what WCW was before it became a profit center, had no understanding of what I had to do to keep it that way and make it that way. When that group of people, you know, went around the table and started telling me how I was going to, you know, run my business, most importantly on the creative side, it's like I called him out at. There was one individual I'll never forget. He was the last person I talked to. He was a head of ad sales. 
Joe Yuva went on to become a very powerful entertainment executive outside of Turner. Uh, might still be for all I know. And when we, when, when we got, he was the last person at the table and he says, Eric, you know, we, we want to, we want your wrestling to be more family friendly, more, you know, G rated. Now keep in mind, I'm pushing for 18 to 49. That's what we had built up all of our success with. That's why we were profitable. That's why we were the number one wrestling company in the world at the time. All of those things were because of the, the strategy, the creative strategy that we employed. And then to have somebody that never watched the show that knew nothing about the business, knew nothing about, you know, where WCW was and where WC and why it was where it was at that time. I called him out on it. This is probably in the food chain at Turner Broadcasting at the time, maybe the third or fourth most powerful executive in Turner Broadcasting. And I made him look like an idiot. I wasn't, I didn't call him names or make fun of him, but I pointed out how much he didn't know. You know, you don't do that to somebody who's, that far up the food chain in front of 14 other people. <laughs> That's dumb. But I thought at that time, I thought, well, Ted, you know, gets to the point where Joe, you and I have to sit down in front of Ted. I'll win because I know my business better than he did, but didn't work out that way. <laughs> well, Don't bring a baseball bat to a golf course, <laughs> learn how to swing a golf club. <laughs> uh, let's do one from, um, Corey, he wants to know, I asked you a while back about abyss and your thoughts on him, but you never really went in depth. So I'd like to ask again, what do you think about abyss? And do you think he could have been a big star in WWE? No, I, I think the world of abyss, I think the, as a human being, I think he's just as first class as first class can get. He's honest. He has integrity. He's got a great work ethic. He's talented in the ring. He was talented. He was a big man, but he could do some amazing things, but he didn't have the personality to survive in WWE as, as, as a talent. He's doing a great job there as a producer now. Um, Cause he's got, he's really intelligent guy. I mean, really intelligent guy. Are, are you saying he wasn't a political enough animal or I mean, he was just too sensitive. He was too sensitive. Uh, he just was too sensitive. Rick says all the time, there's guys who were too nice for wrestling. You think the real life Chris Parks was too nice for wrestling? I think he's a poster child for that comment. Yeah. I think if I've ever met anybody who was too nice and cared too much about what other people thought of him, it would be Chris Park. And in, in WWE, especially, <clears throat> you know, you go back to, you know, WWE today is a little different environment. WWE today is a lot different environment a lot than yeah. it was back in the eighties or even into the nineties or even into the early two thousands. WWE today is like working for a bank that you get to wear tights and throw people around. It's a very, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very corporate environment. <laughs> um, so probably if, if Chris Park was 25 years old, or 30 years old and just getting his first opportunity in WWE in today's environment, I think he'd do fine. But back then I don't think he would have lasted a month. Well, uh, we talked about, you know, whether or not a best could be a big star in WWE. Well, if you're ready to be a big star in the bedroom, give that hot tag to blue chew. It's time to dig yourself out of that winter hibernation. Spring is here and it's time to get sprung with blue chew. That's right. Today's episode and our studio and Eric's Wayne are sponsored by blue chew. 
guys. Confidence can take you far in life. It can also help in the bedroom, especially when it comes time to, uh, step up to the plate. And that's where blue chew comes in. You see blue chew is a unique online service that delivers you the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take these dudes anytime, day or night. So you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is simple. You sign up at bluechew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And of course, blue Chew's tablets are made right here in the USA. They're prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package, but there won't be anything discreet about your package. So if you could benefit from extra confidence, when it's time to perform blue Chew can help. We've got a special deal for our listeners try blue Chew free. When you use our promo code 83 weeks at checkout, just pay the $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is 83 weeks and you'll receive your very first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast and Eric's ween. No, I, I was about to say, you know, people think about, you know, blue Chew, and it's like, maybe they're a little embarrassed because they feel like, you know, God, do I really need Dude, it's all about performance. If you go out and buy a $3,000 computer and you got this beautiful computer sitting on your desk, it's got a powerful hard drive and memory and can do all these wonderful things. Well, guess what? You still have to update your software in order to reach the maximum performance of your hard drive. Your hard drive won't work if your software needs updating. And the way I look at it, every Saturday or Sunday morning when I've got the weekend ahead, I get up early, you know, getting a, getting a little bit of that romantic feeling. I want my software to be updated so that my hard drive performs. It's no different than your computer. Update your damn software, get maximum performance out of your hard drive, and you will be one happy operator. Hard drive. Check it out. Hard drive. Thank you. Software. Google it. I'm a fan. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. <laughs> uh, here's a question from uh, Slapnut Rob over at adfreeshows.com. He says, most top guys and gals are very polarizing to their peers. People like Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels still have people saying negative things about them in shoots, but it seems like Stone Cold Steve Austin has avoided that and seems universally loved by the talent. Why do you think that is? Oh, you know, I don't know. I think it comes down to the individual. You know, I, I, I will say this. I, Hulk Hogan doesn't, I, 
I don't, I can't remember the last time I heard him say anything negative about anybody. Right. You know, um, and, and same with Steve Austin. Well, now, hang on now. We're not saying they're saying negative things. We're saying other people are saying negative things about them. Does that make sense? Oh, so like a lot of I people that's say the nature of the, the, you know, the audience is, you know, it's like, anytime I, I, I point something out, you know, it's just my opinion, you know, and half the people agree with me. The other, you know, half want to, you know, they, they lose their minds. And I, I think it just has to do with the, the nature of wrestling fans. You know, if you look at professional wrestling, what it is, it's just, it's basically a, a product about two or more individuals who are beating the hell out of each other. Yeah. You like one, you hate the other when it's done well. Right. And I think there's an inherent kind of good and evil like, and dislike it's inherent in the nature of the product. And I, and then you've got, you know, wrestling fans who are loyal, they're passionate, you know, they identify. And I think that's what, that's what I see in social media is the extent to which people identify with a person or a company to the point where they lose their shit and they're not thinking rationally any longer. It's just all emotion. But part of that, I think is due to the inherent nature of the product. You know, some of it starts at the top, you know, I respect the hell out of Bret Hart. I don't want to say anything negative about Bret. I really don't. Um, Because I think we all, as we get older, get smarter and understand things differently. Um, But, you know, Bret is a guy who's, very outspoken um, about what he likes and what he doesn't like and who he likes and who he doesn't like and, and carries that around. You know, it's almost like he wears a billboard, you know, wherever he goes, you listen to a Bret Hart interview and inevitably it's uh, more often come than not, he's talking about somebody that, you know, should have never been in the wrestling business. Right. Um, That's, I feel like that I've heard of, him say so, that before, maybe about somebody I know. Yeah. Or, or, you know, lately it's Bill Goldberg, right? Right. Right. But, but it changes, you know, well, sometimes it's Hulk Hogan. Sometimes it was Vince McMahon. Sometimes it was Shawn Michaels and then they kiss and make up and then he transfers that angst over to somebody else, but that filters down, you know? Um, and then it becomes part of his fans narrative. And then people on the, in social media start arguing about it because they don't agree with it. And it's just, you know, it starts at the top and works its way down. So you feel like if those guys are negative, maybe the, the, the fans will be negative. I just, the fans, their fans, people who relate to them, identify with them, want to defend them, want by virtue of, of whatever connection they feel with them, kind of extend their, their narrative to the outside world. I think it has a lot to do with it. And I think the reason that we don't, you know, Steve Austin isn't active in social media. You know, yeah, he promotes his beer true. and takes a picture of his dog every once in a while or his four wheeler. He likes to hunt and fish and talk about that. He doesn't get into the, the mud with everybody else. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, you don't hear anything like that. You don't hear people talking about Steve that way. I feel like, uh, Hogan was also no disrespect to anybody else, but comparing Hogan, Brett, Sean, and Austin Hogan was on top a lot longer. Hogan was the top guy and really the flag bearer for the professional wrestling expansion in both the eighties and the nineties. And I know that Austin became the top star, but without the NWO, I don't know that we would have ever seen stone cold, Steve Austin, the way we saw him. So I'm saying all that to say, 
when you're the top guy for so long, there's going to be a whole lot of folks who say, oh, it's time for this guy to move on. Or he's got my spot. I mean, everybody's vying for that top spot. And I know it's a work, but the money ain't. And the top guy makes the most money. Uh, that's just sort of understood. So, okay. You want a prop, but more often than not, that prop meant more money. And I think maybe the knock on Brett was Brett just happened to be on top when business was down. I'm not saying that was Brett's fault. I'm just saying wrestling as a whole has been known to be cyclical, or certainly we hear people say that we don't have to debate that today. The point is Brett was not the top guy when the business was at its peak. Hogan was on multiple occasions. The same story is true of Sean, but Sean is a guy and we don't talk about addiction a ton on this show, but Sean is a guy who was in active addiction at the time. So when people have negative things to say about Sean, they're talking to a guy who was probably off the rails chemically at the time, not the guy who's there now. That's just me giving a guy a little bit of leeway there. Uh, but with, with stone cold, man, he was really only on top for just a handful of years. Now don't get me wrong. They were big time, bright, glorious years, but he wins the belt in like 98. And I think he's out of there in Oh three. So you got a five-year run and he was out one year, a whole year with a neck injury. So really, and that includes when he took his ball and went home, you got four years of him being the top guy. That's not the same as Hogan, who was the top guy in 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91. And then of course the whole NWO thing. So I think timing has a lot to do with this, Eric. It, it does. And, and look, you know, I, I, I love Terry Blayle. Hulk Hogan, of course. He, he, he is a, a very, one of my best friends, but here's the truth. You know, Hulk, you know, you talk about the eighties and the nineties, you know, the wrestling business was a shark tank. It was very political. It, and Hulk in order to survive participated in those politics, he was very close to Vince McMahon. Um, you know, I'm, I don't be careful what I say here. No, you don't. Um, I, I, I'm, I've got a script, you know, uh, for the Hogan feature that really digs into the relationship historically. And it's documented. This is not, you know, people just making stuff up. Um, Hulk, for a long period of time, in a critical period, was extremely clear. You know, Hulk moved to Connecticut, lived down the street from, from Vince. There was a point in time where Hulk saw himself as you know, Vince's partner, not technically, but felt like he was, they were that tight. Yeah. You don't think there's going to be jealousy there. Of course. Even though it was justified Hulk was, you know, instrumental along with Vince in completely changing the business in the early eighties and, and growing it to a level that back in the eighties, nobody would have ever believed could happen, but because of the relationship between Hulk and Vince, there, there began, you know, the jealousy and the, the narrative and those who weren't ever able to kind of get to that level, why Hulk was, are going to start saying negative things about him. And Hey, let's, let's be honest. Some of them, maybe Hulk deserved because he, it was a shark tank. You, you didn't survive in the wrestling business by being the nicest guy in the locker room, right? You survived in the wrestling industry by protecting yourself and your position and your character. And Hulk was a master at that. And sure, some people resented it and were jealous of it. And there begins the narrative, right? Um, but I don't know. Going back to Steve, I just don't think Steve was a, a political animal. 
Steve was going to protect himself, but he didn't. Well, I wasn't there, so it's not fair for me to say this. My impression was that Steve was just never nearly as political as some people who have been at the position that Steve was in. Adam Arpin wants to know, you've discussed previously how Ted DiBiase just wasn't a good fit in his role for the NWO. If you could go back and put someone else in that role, who would it be? Personally, I would have loved to have seen Rick rude a year sooner. Um, Rick rude could have been a good fit in that position. Could have been a perfect fit in that position. Now that I think about it, if you could go back and rewind time and, and take another run at things. Yeah. Rick could have been excellent in that position. I agree. Can't think of anybody better off the top of my head. Brad Stanton wants to know what's everyone's obsession with being the next NWO, the next Goldberg, the next rock. Don't you think things end for a reason and creative and fans should concentrate more on first. Yeah, I do, but that's hard to come by. Right. And it's not that, you know, people want the next rock or they want the next version of NWO or they want the next version of you know, John Cena or anything else. What they want is the next version of that level of excitement. That's what they want. That's what they're missing. That's why you, you know, see people forming factions that are in one way, shape or form. Um, some of them more obvious than others, you know, take the bullet club. Is that not a obvious, I don't want to say rip off, but derivative of the NWO and you got everybody running around throwing the two sweet sign up. Come on. You know, you look at the Blackpool Combat Club. You look, have you seen their logo lately? Come on. You know, and I, I think what people are striving for or hoping for is that next level of something breaking through and being that powerful, whether it's Rock or Steve Austin or Ric Flair, you know, at the peak of his career, whatever, you name it. Um, they're looking for that level of excitement and striving for that period again. They want to experience that. They want to experience that buzz again, man. That's all it is. Mr. Epic says if AEW were to get their hands on Bruce Pritchard, Kevin Dunn, or even Michael Hayes, do you think they could be a serious threat to WWE? No. Yeah. No. It's not about personnel. It's about a no. 50 year head start. It's a 50 year head start. That's like 75% of it right there. Yeah. Now, I disagree. Well, I'll say I disagree. I, I don't believe in the creative strategy that AEW has. I think there's a serious. Oh, come on, um, Eric. You believe in WWE's creative strategy more? Yeah, I do. No, you doesn't don't. Mean, it doesn't mean I like it better, by the way. It doesn't mean that it's, I find it to be more entertaining to watch. But as a business strategy, oh, yeah, I do. Oh, gosh. Because WWE is providing wrestling content for a global mass audience. Okay. I understand what you're saying. You're saying Tony is booking for a, the hardcore wrestling fan that he's booking exactly. for and the, he's, the and he's doing and a great job. I, I would, you know, if you could do the research on this, which would be impossible to do and wouldn't make any sense for anybody to pay for it. But if you could somehow, you know, wave a magic wand and figure out a way to do the research, I would say that AEW probably has an 80% lock on the dirt sheet wrestling, I can call it dirt sheet as a rib, but uh, on the internet wrestling audience, those people who are the most active in social media and on the internet 
are probably 75 or 80 percent of them are probably really really big um aew fans and that's the market in my my opinion, it's not a criticism. It's an observation. In my opinion, that is the market that AEW is targeting and catering and reacting to. Whereas WWE is catering to and, and building a more, a broader audience, not just that hardcore wrestling fan dream match. But, you know, but at the same time, like like spectacle they- kind of kind of an audience WWE ain't building shit. Their ratings are going down. Their ratings are going down domestically. But if you look at, look at the, look at WrestleMania, how many people watch WrestleMania oh, this year compared I, to any other WrestleMania? Well, but hang on now. That's because there's two nights of it. Let's just be honest about that. Cut that shit in half. I, I mean, cut it in half and still look at it. It's still bigger than anything that's happened and, and, before, but, but also you, too, it's free. I just want to remind everybody. WrestleMania is free. If you got Comcast. And how did they, how did they get to the point? Well, it's free, but WWE is making their money off oh. of their relationship with Peacock and therefore it's still generating well, revenue. Hang They're on, hang on now. Away. Hang They're on making now. money off of it. Hang on now. You can't get shifty on me. You just talked about how they're building an audience and now we switch to revenue. And we're going to have a, a, a creative conversation, an audience conversation or a revenue conversation. Creatively, I don't think the hardcore fans love what WWE is doing. Let me ask you this. Let's erase WWE from the conversation, man. The hardcore football fans don't love what the NFL is doing. Well, that but would they be still watch that would and be the revenues are at record at record levels. I'm not arguing the revenue piece. I'm totally with you. I mean, I, again, there is no, which is why I almost answered before you did. AEW is not going to be more competitive with WWE because they get a couple of guys behind the scenes. It's the 50 year head start. It's the trademarks. It's the licensing. It's the global footprint. It's blah, 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 blah. Legacy wise. If you were to go say to someone, oh yeah, my son's training the, for pro wrestling. He's training to become a pro wrestler. The person who hears that the non wrestling fan who at least knows what it is would say to them, you mean that WWE stuff? They would not say, you mean that AEW stuff, they are the brand. So I get that. But the idea that the way to grow this audience is to not cater to them is a little troublesome because to me, if you're a hardcore football fan, man, I want more football. That's the reason there's an NFL network and all these talking head shows about every single thing that happens. I don't think it's a bad play. I understand you're thinking that maybe it's too niche, but I do think there's a difference between what Tony is presenting versus what Paul Heyman presented in the late eight at late nineties, the late nineties was so edgy and so hardcore and so over the top that maybe it did only appeal to uh, a teenage boy, right? Versus what he's doing with AEW that doesn't just appeal to a teenage boy, but it does appeal to long-term hardcore wrestling fans. Maybe not a casual fan who's trying to find the national geographic and just happens across Hangman Adam Page. See, I I, 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 okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You put a thousand people in a room that, that identify as wrestling fans. Yes. Thousand people. Of that thousand people, 10% of them are going to be hardcore wrestling fans. And so let's define what a hardcore wrestling fan is for the purpose of this conversation because everybody will have a different opinion. My definition of a hardcore wrestling fan watch every week. Is somebody that's watching every week, yes. that's following it on social media, that's investing time, 
you know, communicating with others, you know, on Reddit or whatever the case may be, people that are just immersed in what's going on. 10% of that thousand people are going to be that fan. Yeah. 90% of the people are going to people be people that watch occasionally once a month, twice a month. They'll check out the big pay-per-views. They'll get excited about WrestleMania. Um, they'll maybe go to a house show, you know, a WWE live event uh, once, twice a year, maybe. I'd rather have 900 of those people to build my business on and appeal to than 100 of those people who are so invested in my shit. And you can't appeal to those 900 out of 1,000 people that are considered to be casual wrestling fans. Well, hang on people that there. enjoy wrestling, they'll watch it when they're home. You know, if, there, if there's not something else on television that's, you know, maybe in the during the NFL on Monday Night Football, you're going to probably lose that audience, which WWE does. Typically, every year when NFL starts, WWE takes a hit. But their core audience is still significant enough because they've appealed to those 900 people but, and not to the 100 people. Eric, I and, think. And, and the, you, let me finish. And the creative that you embrace and you use as your strategy, if you're going to, if the design of your creative is to appeal to those hundred people, you're never going to get the 900. You're never going to get them. You're going to, you're going to have a hundred percent of a hundred people, but you're going to get 2% of 900. And I, the creative is what drives that choice or what drives that distinction. And that's why W it's hard. I think to say, well, let's just separate revenue from creative. I don't know how you do that. That's like saying, let's, let's not talk about performance. Let's just talk about the way the car looks. Okay. There's a certain percentage of people that don't care about performance, but if you're, if Conrad Thompson is going to drop $250,000 on a vehicle, it's going to be about performance. I don't know how you separate creative from revenues. My turn now. I'm sorry. No, it's all good, but you're totally wrong on everything you just said. <laughs> and here's why, you know, let's, let's make a radio comparison. You, you and I are both radio fans enough. We can have this conversation here in Huntsville, Alabama. We have had a legacy sports station forever. Seven thirty, the ump. They've been a radio station here in North Alabama, talking about sports my entire life, 40 years. Then about 10 or 15 years ago, a new station popped up, uh, 97, seven, the zone. And it's no longer just an AM station. They have an FM station, but they're a startup. Everyone who listens to the new station, the zone knows the old station exists, the ump, but everyone who listens to the ump doesn't know the zone exists. I believe that you have so many people watching WWE because they just always have, they know that wrestling comes on on Monday night and they check it out and they watch it. And Eric, I think you benefited from that by going head to head. Because wrestling fans were conditioned by that point, even just a few years in that, Hey, wrestling's on, on Monday night. Now, of course, a lot of people think that wrestling started on Monday with Monday night raw. That's not the case. It, it predated that as well. That was just the new name of the show. The point being wrestling fans were conditioned wrestling's on Monday night. I think there's a whole lot of casual fans who maybe they watch Monday night football, but they don't necessarily buy NFL jerseys. They don't buy NFL tickets. They don't buy NFL hats. They just happen to watch Monday night football and whether it's on ABC or it's on ESPN or whatever, they're watching Monday night football. 
I think the WWE creative <clears throat> that you're championing and saying that's the reason people are watching is not true. If they were watching for creative, the word of mouth would have their ratings going up. That is not the case. They're servicing a base that's been established for decades at this point who are just conditioned to do what they've been doing. My wife and I know Sunday night at nine o'clock or eight o'clock, we're watching winning time on HBO. It's appointment television for us. And I think a lot of wrestling fans, whether they're hardcore or not, are going to tune in because they just always did. Why are you going to, not you, but why are you going to work on Monday? Why are you going to work today? Because it's what you did Friday. It's just, we're in the condition of that's what we do. AEW starting from absolute scratch on a new night, on a new channel with new characters, and they've already done phenomenally well. But the idea that WWE is the bigger company because of their creative head to head is not true because a lot of those WWE fans don't even know this exists. That's reality. In my opinion, I, I, I just, we're going to have to agree to disagree. You know, you know, we'll go back to, you know, wait, so you're saying you personally could watch raw and then watch dynamite and you would say raw was the better show. How often would you have said that in the last see, year? See, herein lies the difference. I look at things differently. You think my I uncle Tommy at, likes WWE Raw better than Dynamite? Come on, just a casual. I actually guy. do. Right now, I do like WWE better than I like Monday Night or than I like uh, Dynamite. Dynamite is. I wanted to like it, and I'll still. You know, I, I want to make this really clear. Because every time we get into a conversation like this, I'm responding to a question. Yes. I'm giving my honest opinion. I like Tony Khan. Of course. I, I like him as a person. I don't know him real well, but my, my, my rea- interaction with him, as limited as it was, I walked away you know, going, wow, this is, a, this is a good human being. I like yes. this guy. Yes. He's doing good things. He's got, he's generous. He's, he wants people to be successful. He wants to elevate people. I I truly believe that even though I don't know him real well. Okay. But when I'm watching the product, not as a just, you know, average wrestling fan, because I'm not, I'm a guy who spent over 30 years in the industry and was involved in some really interesting aspects of it during some very, very interesting times. My perspective of the industry is different than the average wrestling fan. When I watch Monday Night Raw, I don't watch it to be entertained. I watch it to kind of look at it and see what's changing, what's evolving. Is there a new strategy you know, involved here? When I watch Dynamite, I know I'm watching a show that's being produced to appeal to the smallest percentage of the overall wrestling audience. The dream match scenarios. You know, great. It's, you know, wrestling, you know, the internet wrestling community loves that. The, the, the other 900 people don't give a shit because they're watching for story. They're watching for characters. And I think the WWE storylines suffer um, because of the sheer volume that they do and the, the follow through and the lack of real structure to many of their stories. Here's an exception. One of the things I'm most excited about right now in the wrestling industry is Elias and Ezekiel. I think that story is fascinating because it is when, and when I first saw it, when it first popped up, I went, Oh no, please, this is weird. Yeah. But the execution of that story has got me really interested because it's a more structured approach to telling that story. It's not just, you know, somebody coming out, interrupting in the middle of the ring, interrupting a promo, cutting your own promo, have a pull apart, boom, pay-per-view match. And so I've seen, and I've seen that in WWE. 
I, I think the WWE's attention to detail and commitment to structure and story is severely lacking and has been for a long time. I've been saying that since probably 2014 or 2015. And I'll, and I still say it. Um, but I think it's far better than what I see in AEW. And you can tell me all day long about, yeah, but here's really the story. Here's what's really going on. And great. If you feel that way, unfortunately, the vast majority of the people in this country don't and wrestling fans don't because there's no, it's appealing. And again, there's what they sold out Chicago in 45 minutes, whatever it is. Congratulations. And I don't mean that in a smart snarky way. That is a hell of an accomplishment. But I think there is a cap. There is a limit to that type of creativity and how far that company will grow or if it will grow at all. If you have 80% of 10% of a market and, and you control that market, that market loves your product and your approach to creative better than they like the WWE's approach to creative, then good for you. That's your audience. That's what you've got. It won't grow. It just won't. And it could be because of the production values of WWE, it could be because of the history. Look, when I when we went head to head with WWE, people hated WCW. It wasn't a startup with a clean slate. People hated it. Everybody and their brother. We listened to a, a Paul Heyman uh, a quote or, or or a segment the other day on Eric fires back where Paul Heyman, who is why I think one of the smartest people in the industry, you know, predicted the demise of WCW, but it, but it didn't, right. We didn't die. And we didn't, we didn't succeed just because we went head to head. We, we succeeded because we changed the creative strategy to appeal to a broader audience. And that's why I think WWE's creative strategy is superior to AEW's creative strategy when it comes to revenues and business. It's, it's taste. There are some people that absolutely love AEW's product better and I'm glad for them and for AEW as a result. But I think there is a limit to just how much that creative formula can grow. I think what we're, I think what you and I both agree on is we're both glad there's choice. You know, no longer do you go down to the ice cream store and it's, do you want vanilla or vanilla? Uh, now, Hey man, you want vanilla? You want chocolate? Hey, we got some strawberry over here. If you're in the mood for some impact, there's different flavors and I appreciate that. But I do want to circle back to something you said a minute ago, because I am interested in your perspective. You gave the example of there's a thousand people who identify as wrestling fans. And he thought maybe a hundred would be the hardcore. The other 900 would be the casual. I am interested in this. Would you rather have the tonnage of 900 fans who are eh, invested or a hundred super passionate spend their life away on it? So they're buying every action figure, every t-shirt, every ticket, every pay-per-view a hundred who are fiercely loyal and vote with their dollars or 900 who are lukewarm and will watch it, but they're not really going to spend any money. Would I rather have two point? 2 million people watching my show on any given night uh, on a Monday night or a Friday, night, or would I, would I rather have 900,000 people watching my show? There's your answer right there. Well, I, I'm with you, but I asked because TNA once had that, they used to have 2 million people watch the show and then 13,000 people buy the pay-per-view. Let's let's let, look. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's a, that's a great thing to bring up when TNA had approximately 2 million people watching for a brief period of time. Um, 
WWE was delivering four or 5 million people. TNA was delivering half of WWE's audience. AEW right now is delivering less than half of WWE's audience. The parallel between TNA and what it was and AEW and what it is in comparison to WWE and what it was and what it is, is almost identical. Well, you're saying as a television property for ratings, but I'll be darned. I don't remember TNA ever selling out United center in 45 minutes. No, no, there's no question about that. Yeah. There's no question. So that's my point. A a, a lot of that had to do with the fact that nobody in TNA wanted to expend, invest the resources like Tony did. Tony went big. Wait, what Tony is, made a statement. What, what does that mean? Tony went, but invest the resources, booking a bigger building, booking a bigger building and committing to that show. Yeah. No, that's not the issue, dude. Come on now. It's not like you guys just didn't run big enough buildings. You ran shows and you couldn't fucking give away. Say tickets. you, it was not a me. Well, right, right. I just mean TNA. TNA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My apologies. I stand corrected. I'm just saying TNA had some bigger opportunities for bigger buildings. It didn't work. So they went back to the studio. So it's no, not, they never did a big building. And here's it here, here. And herein lies the difference. Again, this is what AEW is doing correctly. Look, one of the, what, and you know this better than I do. Cause I, number one, I don't pay close enough attention and I don't have as good a memory as you do, but what launched AEW? What was the first big event that launched AEW? Double or nothing 2019 in Las Vegas. Boom. How many people, how many people showed up there? Sold out in an hour. Or immediately, a minute. So and they had no television. Correct. Okay. They were able to appeal and connect with the social media audience, the internet wrestling. That was an internet wrestling audience effort. But that's what and I'm asking you though. Like, would you rather have that? Cause like, I just know TNA used to have the tonnage, right? But they didn't have the passionate loyal fan who would vote with their wallet. No, and you started out by saying, let's, that was TV. Let's not talk about TV. Let's talk about live events. My point is that what Tony Khan and, and the people with him did absolutely brilliantly is establish that brand in an exciting kind of groundbreaking, record breaking live event experience. And television came after it. And they did it by appealing to the, the, the internet wrestling community because there was nobody else. There was no other way to get to the audience. And they did it very, very effectively. People should write books about how that was done. That should be a class somewhere. Okay. Did it perfectly. They did it without television, but that's in this same. You could say the same thing about Chicago that just sold out in 40 or 45 minutes. They've got a hundred percent, 80 or a hundred percent of that internet wrestling audience that they started out with. At some point you have to grow the television product and what worked in a, in a, by way of appealing to the internet wrestling audience and owning that segment, that 10% is great for their live events, obviously, but their television isn't keeping pace. And at the end of all of the discussion and the opinions and the feelings and the emotion, here's what is important. If any wrestling company, WWE, AEW, any impact, you name it, if any wrestling company is going to survive, it has to have a successful and robust television property. But now successful, it it can be defined a few different ways. You're defining it based on eyeballs, but 
earlier, you pivoted to defining it by revenue. So let's talk about that. It's the same thing. How do you separate those? Well, here's how I'm saying AEW right now is delivering solid numbers for what the spend is. But our old pal over at WrestleNomics, Mr. Brandon, he says he thinks the AW property, when they get ready to renegotiate their television rights, could be a multiple of more than 4X. So all of a sudden, um, it, but, go ahead. Based on what? Well, I, 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 just, I, I'm not him. You'd have to look at the report. The point is. No, I know. And I'm well aware of his report, and I try not to pick pick apart you know shit like that and individuals who I don't know, I've never had a conversation with, but let's be real. Brandon Thurston is buddies with who over at AEW, Chris Harrington, Chris Harrington's a VP at AEW Brandon Thurston's narrative for the most part, he's a surrogate. He is in his own way using data to promote the AEW brand, just like Dave Meltzer does with his dirt sheet. It's the same thing. There's no con. You notice the one thing that nobody talks about when they talk Brandon Thurston never talks about, when he's talking about AEW, never talks about revenues, never talks about their business, never talks about profit or loss. He'll spend a fucking week analyzing. But, but how can he? You know, it's it, not publicly traded. Okay. They are related. No, how they're not publicly not traded. I didn't say related. I said publicly traded. WWE releases their financials. AEW's private. How would Brandon Thurston have access to that? Ask a question. Well, ask Tony Khan. We're private. Tony, we're private. How, 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 how much? What were your expenses this year? We're private. What was your revenue this year? We're how private. profitable are you or aren't you? We're it's private. a simple question. But why would you answer that if you're private? That's the reason you're private. So you don't have to. No, that's not yourself. the reason you're private. The reason you're private is because you can't go public and you choose not to go public. Here's here's where things get you know funky for me. If you want to dissect, and, and this is what Brandon Thurston and Dave Meltzer and all of the, the AEW surrogates, big and small, do, is constantly trying to prove that AEW is a better product and has a brighter future than, a, than WWE. Well, okay, great. That's a conversation. Let's have it. Nobody's doing that, apples are they? To apples. Who's doing Sorry? that? Everybody knows WWE is bigger. That's, full, that's fool's gold to say that WWE doesn't have the future. How many, how, how many times have we heard or read that? AEW is profitable. Uh, I don't recall. I mean, I know that they lost money last year because they made a video game investment. I mean, or at least that's what's been speculated upon. I shouldn't say I know. That's I, I know I've, no, I've no, read that no, speculation. Nobody knows anything because none of this information is scrutinized or publicized. When was the last time Dave Meltzer reported on, let's say, I don't know, how much is CM Punk making? Well, I know you know, I've and heard, I know I know. Yeah, I'm not going to break it. Yeah. And neither are you. No. But the fact is, again, when you, 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 we can talk about, again, Chicago sold out 40 minutes at what cost, how much, what are the expenses? We don't know. You know, how much is Tony Khan spending in talent in 2022 compared to the revenue that's being generated by these live events that are selling out in 40 minutes? I don't know. You don't think any, you don't think any of that information has value when you go to renegotiate your television that you sold out the United Center. And- here's 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 another thing. This is so. There's only one data point that matters. I shouldn't say that. The primary data point, the one that everybody is going to focus on initially, the demo is how much revenue did AEW generate for Turner. Mm-hmm. Nobody gives a shit how much money Tony spent. If you're a Turner, 
Nobody cares how much money Tony's invested. Nobody cares how fast Tony sold out a building in Chicago or New York or anywhere else. If you're an executive at Turner Broadcasting or now Discovery, okay, here's what Discovery is going to care about. What, what is the revenue derived from television based on ratings that AEW as an organization, how much of that revenue, how much revenue is that company or that time slot going to generate for discovery? And guess what? That's based on ratings and it's based on the CPMs and the CPMs cost per thousand, the basis of, 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 of of the ad sales industry. That is what's going to determine AEW's fate as a television property or whether it's got a multiple of four X, you know, for discovery if they decide to redo it or some other network if they decide to take it. I'm sorry. Revenue and ratings are the only data point that really matter. How much, how much advertising have you bought in your life? Not sold, bought, not created content, bought. How much have you bought? Very, very, very little, very little. I suspect as someone who spent $10 million in advertising minimum, that when someone brings you a new product or new property, Hey, Mr. Mr. Advertiser, I want to sell you blank. Let me tell you about it. If you don't have any frame of reference for what AEW is, you're going to say, so this is like WWE. No, it's not WWE. It's this new startup. Well, do you do WWE? Well, hang on. Let me explain this sold out United center in 45 minutes, that frame of context. If you think they're not pitching that to try to contextualize what AEW is, because there's been a lot of other wrestling properties like Lucha Underground that we talked about earlier and all these others that for whatever reason, just were not as on fire as AEW is now it, that has value. I mean, you're going to have to arm your salespeople with some information. Why is this the hot thing? Because man, this is hot in the demo. If you're looking for men this age to that age, man, they just sold out United center and that fast. And the bulls didn't even sell it last season and da, 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 da. That stuff is valuable as a way to contextualize. Hey, what is AEW? I think it does have value, but ultimately the ad buyer is going to ask questions about, Hey, what is this beyond? Okay. There's a lot of people watching because I've bought big radio stations. Our biggest radio station in North Alabama is WDRM. And it is a signal that you can hear in other States. It is so massive, but man, I got this many people who are my potential mortgage listener who are doing that. I get on that little radio station, that little AM station, that little sports station. And yes, there's a much as a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the audience, but they're so fiercely loyal, man, they'll blow my phones up. So I got the tonnage on the other station, but my phone didn't ring, but I paid a bunch for it. But buddy, I got a huge return from this fiercely loyal, passionate fan base. And if I'm an advertiser, I would take the smaller show with a, with, with a more fiercely loyal uh, uh, consumer watching because that's the, and that indicates like selling out the United center that fast is an indicator of that to me. It's an indicator, but guess what? There's also a three-year track record now on Turner Broadcasting. And that three-year track record is what an ad buyer in the media industry is going to look at. They but they, but they've done this routinely, sold out Chicago. They've done this over and over, Eric. They sold out their first show in a minute. It doesn't matter. An ad buyer is not going to be, if you, if you represent, if you're an ad, if you work at an ad agency and you're a media buyer for that ad agency, and let's say your, your, one of your clients is, uh, Coors beer and you're going to take responsibility for making efficient ad buys for your client. You do not care 
about how fast a building sold out. What you're going to care about is what kind of return on investment your client can expect for that ad buy based on data, television data. How is that ad going to do? Now, maybe if you're if you're representing Coors Beer and you're thinking about sponsoring an event at that venue in Chicago, yeah, you're going to want that conversation. That's important. But if you're buying media on television, you're going to look at you're going to look at the ratings. You're going to look at the amount. You know, the, people were talking a lot about demos early on in AEW. Not talk about it much anymore because the demos are suffering. They're not nearly what they were. An ad buyer is going to look at data related to television advertising, not arenas. Oh, I'm I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying to contextualize it because here's here's what else I know. People are having to get creative with the way they sell advertising. No longer do you just get a spot, but now we're going to have a social media presence. We're going to have some sort of piece inside the show. So it'll feel like it's organic and part of the programming. Maybe we can do an on-site activation. I'm just saying to say that, that doesn't have value. I, I I just totally disagree. But one thing I know is you and I don't have to toss and turn and trying to figure all this stuff out because we're sleeping good. Thanks to chili sleep. <laughs> Science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering that core body temperature. You see temperature controlled sleep is going to repair your muscles after a hard day's work and improve your cognitive function. So you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. So check this out. Chili sleep makes customizable climate controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. guys. I slept eight and a half hours last night and it's because I have the Uller. It's a hydro powered temperature controlled mattress topper that fits over my existing mattress, but provides me my ideal sleep temperature. These luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. These, these systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chili sleep can make that happen. Lord knows it has for me. I'm more productive than ever because I'm sleeping better. And here's how I know. Prior to chili sleep, I didn't have dreams. Couldn't tell you the last time I had a dream. Now I have bright, vivid, colorful dreams. And hell, I'm colorblind. But chili sleep's making it happen, man. Head over to chilisleep.com forward slash 83 weeks to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for 83 weeks listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili C H I L I sleep.com slash 83 weeks to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up feeling refreshed every day. Uh, you know, it'd be, you know be really cool. Conrad. What's I'm that? I'm going to try this because we, we have chili sleep here uh, in our home as well. But I think tonight I'm going to take a walk, walk on the wild side. Oh, because you're right, man. When you, when you get into a deep sleep, it's called REM yep. rapid eye movement. Yep. That's when you have the most vivid dreams and the ones that you actually remember. Uh, that's a sign of really deep sleep. And obviously you're experiencing that with chilly sleep, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you some advice here to take your game up a notch. Eat some liver. So that when you go to sleep, <laughs> You not only have a deep, restful sleep, but you're going to go on a journey. Here we go. I'm not talking about microdosing or doing anything illegal. I'm talking about a liver sausage sandwich. I knew you. Otherwise were known as Braunschweiger, and you put a nice, maybe about a half inch thick, maybe a little more. You don't want to make it too thick. We're going to call it a half. We're going to call it five eighths. 
You're going to take a five-eighths thick cut of liver sausage. You're going to lay that on two pieces. Of, I prefer whole wheat bread, but whatever you like. Drench that bitch in Tabasco. Just lots of Tabasco. Put some onions on it, right? Maybe a tomato, like if you're a little hungry. And you slap that thing together. You eat that sandwich, and then you lay down on your chilly sleep, and you go into that rapid eye movement stuff. And you, you, the, you think you're having colorful dreams now? <laughs> you don't know what color is, and not because you're colorblind. This is like the closest thing you can do to taking a trip, and it's healthy and it's fun. Try it. You'll love it. Our men quit. sausage. Yay. Chili sleep. Yay. <laughs> uh. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Quincy Charles wants to know, I recently watched the rise and fall of WCW and Jim Ross made a statement about rights fees that Jim heard didn't get for programming. My question is, do you get right fee rights fees for WCW when Turner owned WCW? Nope. Nope. And the 300 plus million dollars that we generated in revenues and the $50 million in profit had zero, zero license fees, which is crazy. Probably 60% of, of the revenue for or wrestling companies today. Some of them. <laughs> Matt says, how much is Ted Turner missed in today's media industry? Was he the last of a dying breed? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, no question about it. The, the era of the maverick entrepreneur media mogul, with the exception of maybe Elon Musk, we're seeing, <clears throat> it's not television, but we're seeing, you know, hints of, you know, just the renegade entrepreneur that's going to change the world. And that was Ted Turner. Ted Turner in his day was the renegade that was going to turn, you know, news upside down. And by the way, he did in ways that still manifest to this day. Um, Ted Turner was, I miss Ted so much. I actually have a, I have to call Bill Shaw here this weekend and have a conversation with him and, and I'll ask Bill, you know, how Ted is doing. I kind of already know the answer, but I was thinking about Ted the other day. Um, we have a friend who is in the rocket business, Elon Musk light, and he's, he's had a couple of successful launches and has been using California. And he reached out to me the other day because Ted owns millions of acres in New Mexico. And our friend wants to get access to some of Ted's property to potentially do some of his, his next launch, his next uh, satellite test, or rocket test. So that, that's why I'm reaching out. And I was thinking about this and thinking about Ted as a result of it. And there never was anybody like Ted before Ted, and there won't be anybody like Ted since in the television industry. Television has become so corporate. It's, it's, it's more like banking than it is like entertainment anymore. The decisions that are being made, the way the industry is structured, the vertical integration that's occurred, the lack of really independent producers and creators, 
and the outlets for independent creators and producers to come up with the next big thing, those opportunities are no longer there because of the, the vertical integration. The fact that big companies are buying up small companies and it becomes one big company. And then it operates like a bank or a law firm as opposed to a creative entity. And because of that, I, I, I don't think television will ever be what it once was. And Ted was the last of the real mavericks and rebels and innovators when it came to television, in my opinion. Well said. Aldo says, uh, Eric once said he did karate tournaments after his time in AWA before going to WCW. My question is if he decided to step away from the wrestling business entirely, would he have had some involvement in the UFC in its early years as a coach commentator or something else? No, and actually my, my involvement in martial arts predated AEW. I didn't get it. I think I fought in a couple of tournaments after AWA because my son Garrett was training, uh, in, in karate at the time. And I wanted to be able to participate, participate in a couple of tournaments with Garrett, even though he was really, really young. Garrett got his black belt. I think when he was about 12 or 14. Um, so there was a period of time after AWA actually, while I was still living in Atlanta that I, and working for WCW that I competed in a few tournaments here or there, but not, not in a serious way, more just to do a father son kind of experience. Um, I know I got out of martial arts probably in 1990 was the last time that I was really serious about it. Um, so no, I don't no, I, I was never interested. Once I, you know, I'm funny that way. Once I make up my mind that something's done and it's over with, it's really done and over with. I very rarely go back to something. Once I make up my mind, I no longer am interested, but with, with martial arts, I knew that I experienced all of the best things that I could possibly experience. I had a lot of fun, made some great friends, you know, learned some skills that would stick with me for a long time. But once I realized it's time to move on, it was, I just completely lost interest in it. Just like flying. You know, I was so passionate about flying. You know, I, I, Got, not only got my pilot's license, I got my instrument rating. I was licensed to fly high-performance complex, complex aircraft, which is a category that I had to qualify for. Um, bought my own plane. I loved it. I never imagined that I would ever stop flying. I was so passionate about it until I wasn't. And then I sold my plane, and I don't miss it. And it's the same way with martial arts for me. Here's one from uh, Jason with the benefit of hindsight and the decades of the raw SmackDown brand split. Do you wish you would have done a nitro thunder split? <laughs> yeah, that was the original plan. That's exactly what the plan was. And I wasn't a goal. I wasn't my idea. I didn't want to do it. I was told to do it. I was told to have two different shows in prime time. One on Monday, one on Thursday. And the brand split was the only thing that made sense to me at the time. I didn't call it a brand split. But I was going, you know the story. I won't spend too, minutes, too much time talking about it. But, you know, uh, NWO was going to take over Nitro and WCW was going to uh, take over or, or Thunder was going to be that, that show. And then we would have the storyline rivalries between the two of them. That was the original pl plan. And I wish it would have, you know, wish it would have happened. But it didn't. Drew Landry wants to know, should woman be in the WWE Hall of Fame? Oh, I don't know. That's subjective, right? I'm sure some people believe she should. And some people might question why, what did she accomplish? What was different about woman that was different about anybody else that was a manager? Did she excel in that? Was she Sherry Martell? You know, um, I don't know. I don't have an opinion on that, but 
it's such a subjective question that it's really hard to answer for me. If, if I was on the WWE hall of fame committee, I probably wouldn't vote for her because she didn't, she was good, but she wasn't fantastic. She didn't do anything that kind of broke new ground. Um, she didn't change the business in any way. She didn't reach a level. Whereas, you know, people around the world, you know, still talk about her today in, in any kind of a positive context, unfortunately, not because of her, by the way, obviously, but no, I just think she, she, you know, woman, like a lot of, you know, talent that had success and were, you know, important to a degree had a role, um, but hall of fame worthy. I don't know. Like I said, it's subjective to me, not, no, but to others, perhaps Fernando wants to know if Eric could induct someone into the hall of fame, who would it be? Oh, I don't, gosh, I don't know. I can't even answer that. Not because I don't want to, because I'd have to think about that for so long and so hard. Um, I just can't answer that. I'll think about that. Maybe I'll have an answer next week. Michael wants to know uh, in doing a little research, I saw your old production company was involved in making a short film called the butlers in love. Any memories of that production? Uh, very few. <clears throat> that was an idea that someone brought to us to produce. It wasn't our original idea. We were strictly a vendor at that point, a production entity at that point. So we weren't really involved in a creative uh, or, or, really even on the business side of it, that was, it was a sponsor. This is back. I don't know if you remember this you know, and you might not, and I wouldn't expect that you would. Um, but there was a moment in time in the early two thousands where sponsored short form content was going to be the next big thing. And I think the sponsor for that was absinthe. Uh, the advertising agency for absinthe, wanted to try a short form um, film, we'll call it, not for release in theaters, but for the internet and sponsored that. And the person, the, the, the head of the agency, his name was Tim Staples, actually. He was a pretty cool guy. Uh, Tim came to us because he knew both Jason and I and said, hey, I've got a client that wants to do this. Would you guys produce it for us? That's what that was. Uh, here's one from uh, United Pro Wrestling. Why do you think there was never a WCW one night only? I, for one, would have loved to have seen it. Of course, he's talking about the old ECW one night stand. Why don't you think they ever did a WCW one off? Oh, probably because, I mean, look, when WWE acquired WCW, um, they brought in a lot of the talent that they felt that they wanted to bring in, or they brought in whatever talent that they thought they wanted to bring in along with the acquisition. Some of them stuck around like Booker T. Um, most of them didn't. And I don't know, man. I, 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 I think the access to available talent was probably the issue. You know, at that time, Sting wasn't really interested in doing anything with WWE. Um, they already had Hulk. I guess I can't remember. Um, eventually they all, they, they had them. They had Scott Hall. They had Kevin Nash. I just don't think there was any appetite for a WCW reboot. I think it would be different now. I mean, if somehow you could bring back, you know, a lot of that top talent that represented WCW, you know, the Steiners and Lex Luger and Sting and, 
you know, a, a lot of that top talent that was WCW, um, if you could somehow bring them back in their prime, yeah, it would work today, you know, because look how successful WCW, you know, content is on the network. You know, it's pretty successful, um, but it, there was no streaming platform back then. WCW was considered a dead brand back then. So resurrecting it, I just I think it was a talent issue. It just really wasn't the talent or the appetite to try to take advantage of the talent that was available to make that work. Who's going to take care of your family. If something happens to you, what would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to goliathlife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms you're in total control but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to goliathlife.com. Brendan Crabb wants to know what's the most bizarre or outlandish merch item that Gene Simmons pitched during the WCW kiss business relationship. Nothing, nothing. I mean, Gene was, is uh, pretty brilliant when it comes to merchandising and he was going not for, he was going for mass market merchandise taking advantage of his brand and, and distributing it to the widest variety of or segment of uh, audience that he possibly could. And, and as a result, you know, obviously it was all st- uh, kiss merchandise, but there was nothing outlandish, you know, there was no, you know, kiss dildos or anything like that. If that was the question, although that might've worked, you know, who knows. I don't really know what to say there. Um, Josh wants to know, this is a, what if question. Do you think the NWO would have succeeded if instead of Hall and Nash making the jump, you would have started with Shawn Michaels and triple H. So just to remind everybody, they did the whole, uh, curtain call, if you will, in Madison square garden with four guys, Razor Ramon, Diesel, Hunter Hearst Hemsley, and Shawn Michaels. So what if the other half made the jump? Would it have worked Sean and Hunter? I mean, there's no way to answer that other than who knows. I mean, my gut tells me, I mean, this is why it's so hard. It depends what the frame of mind would have been in, you know? Um, I don't know. I, I think so. I, Shawn Michaels was, I don't think, easy to work. I mean, you've already talked about it, you know, and Sean's talked about it. So I, I don't feel I'm, I'm hesitating because I don't like to talk about things like this, but Sean himself has talked about it. He, Sean had some issues back then. Yeah. In 1996, Sean Michaels. Nah, I don't think so. But had Sean not had the issues that he had in 1996, could it have worked? Maybe. I don't know. I probably would have given it a try but I don't know if it would have worked the same man. The the chemistry between Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and then later Hulk Hogan, but it started with Scott Hall and Kevin, that vibe they brought was really freaking unique. I don't know that triple H or Sean would have brought that same vibe to the table to launch that story. I just don't, I don't know. Maybe. This is uh, an interesting question. TJ wants to know the Super Bowl was in Atlanta during the 99 season. So that would have been January 99, Eric. 
and WCW was still very popular with the idea of media outlets there for radio row, corporate sponsors, people in town, the eyes of the sports world. Did Eric consider running a show that weekend? No, you too much going on. You did you the know, finger was... poke at the beginning of that month. Just to remind everybody, the finger poke of doom was January of 99, like the very beginning of January. So later at the very end of that month, the super Bowl's coming to town. Why did you have to bring that up? Well, I just wanted to, I wanted to remind everybody you had just ran the town. So you, right. you, you were just there three or four weeks ahead of time. Oh, I see. Okay. I, okay. Sa- same I building, so same town. Figure poker dude was in Atlanta. I missed that part. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, but even if it wouldn't have been, if the finger poke of doom would have been in Columbus, Ohio, I, I still wouldn't have done it. Venues would have been hard to find. Nobody wants to go to a wrestling match when they come to the Super Bowl. I know there's a lot of bodies there, but guess what? There's a lot of bodies there that don't want to do anything but party and do football shit. Um, I don't, I, and there wouldn't have been a venue available. Um, it would have been a cluster to try to produce something. Uh, to try to produce TV during Super Bowl week in the city where Super Bowl is happening. Ugh, I would have avoided it like the plague. Uh, here's one that everybody wants to know. James Sorensen wants to know, is Jeff Jarrett a horseman? I think in Jeff Jarrett's mind, absolutely. In the, in the eyes of wrestling fans, I think it's subjective. I think some people probably feel it. Many people like me don't. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Um, but hey, you know, the only thing that's really important is how Jeff feels about it. If Jeff feels like he was a horseman, then by God, he was a horseman. Um, this is a great question from Brian. He says, you, Vince McMahon and Tony Khan were all in your mid to late thirties. When you look to shake up the wrestling world, is there something special about being that age? Or is it simply the age when people first get that type of power? Well, I was 40, 41, which is close enough to late thirties. Yeah. No, I don't think that has anything to do with it. I mean, I had look by 1995. I had 10 years of experience, almost 10 years worth of experience in the wrestling business under my belt. I broke into the industry learning about syndication and ad sales and how it really works. I went from that to learning about production because that's what I was interested in. I was fascinated by it. I ended up by sheer coincidence in front of the camera and developed into a talent and learned how to do play by play. Uh, I learned how to promote live events. I, 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 I had eight or 10 years of experience with me before I got the keys to the car. So my drive was based on my experience, not on my passion. I was passionate for the business, obviously, but it really was my experience and feeling like, Hey, I think I know how to do this mm. uh, based on my experience and, and watching what worked for other people or didn't work for other people. Um, I don't think it had really anything to do with my age and I'm, I don't, I know I can't speak for Vince McMahon or Tony Khan, but I don't think it was their age that kind of drove them as much. It was passion and opportunity. Mike, what's your opinion? Who did you think was the best at cutting promos of all time? Best talker all time, your opinion. So let's pretend there's a shelf. Shelf huh? of, let's pretend there's a shelf of best ofs, just 
one guy after another, you're going to sit down and you're going to watch an hour of their promos. That's it. Who would you pick? It'd be a toss up between Roddy Piper and Ric Flair. Mine might be dusty. Oh gosh. Yes. Yes. That would be okay. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I don't know how that got by me. Cause it just feels like he'd make you laugh. You know, and part of the reason it got by me is I didn't, you know, I watched a lot of dusty's promos back when I was a fan in Minneapolis, before I got into the wrestling business, I didn't watch dusty in the NWA. Right. I didn't watch dusty in Florida championship wrestling. I saw dusty in, in AWA occasionally right. when he'd come through that territory. So I didn't see a lot of the best of dusty, but I did watch a lot of Piper and, and later on flair. Um, when he was in WCW, when I worked with him. So I, yeah, but dusty would have to be right up because of what I've seen of dusty since subsequently. Friend- it's a three-way tie, man. Yeah. It's, it depends what mood I'm in, right? Yeah. It's a three-way tie. It's like, are you really in the mood for the best steak in the world? Or would you really like some of the best sushi you've ever had? It all depends on your mood. Lenny Bakken wants to know if Eric could go back to 89 and if Vern asked his opinion on one thing they could do to get the AWA back on track, what would Eric's response have been? In 89, I would have said, hell, Vern, I don't know. And <laughs> 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 you know, I, I, I had a whole year and a half in the business in 1989. So I didn't, my perspective on what the wrestling could be or should be. Um, I didn't have it. You know, I just didn't, you know, I, I think one thing that was obvious to me, and I don't know that I would have tried to convince Vern to do otherwise, but Vern was, he was so stuck in the mud. You know, Vern was convinced that WWF was going to die, that Vince McMahon, you know, his approach to the product being all showbiz and production values and a, a three ring circus as Vern used to call it. He thought that eventually fans would tire of that and fail and go back to the traditional, you know, way of producing to Bill Watts felt the same way. They both were cut from the same cloth. You know, Bill Watts' approach to fixing WCW was to go back to the 70s. Vern's would have been much the same had Vern gotten the opportunity that Bill Watts got. Neither one of them understood television or the evolution of the product in the audience. Um, I would have probably tried to convince Vern, had I had that perspective, which I didn't have, probably would have tried to convince Vern to try to improve the production value of his shows. You know, Vern had ESPN five days a week. Yeah. I mean, that's a big platform. Yeah. A lot of people would kill for that platform today. You know, it was on in the afternoons. That was not the best time slot, but it was ESPN for God's sake, five nights a week, five days a week had the production values met the opportunity. Perhaps things would have been different, but to be really honest about it, I didn't have that perspective back then. I was just happy to have a job. Well, we know WWE didn't die, but unfortunately, well, we all are. So it's time to tell you about something that I'm super passionate about protecting your family. Yes. It's a life insurance ad for goliathlife.com. But to me, this is really about peace of mind. Think about insurance for a second. You've got medical and auto insurance, but you don't know if you're ever, ever going to need it, but we all know you're going to need life insurance. Now, as you let that reality sink in, think about what would happen if your family stopped having your income tomorrow. If you don't have a plan for that, you need to visit goliathlife.com. And I mean, right now, 
just in the last couple of years, I lost two friends in their forties. They left behind wives and kids. And man, I can't imagine what their life would be like if they didn't have life insurance for those families. And if you don't have it, get it, protect your family. And I suggest you go to goliathlife.com because they've made the process of getting affordable life insurance, super easy. Goliathlife.com streamlines this process by allowing you to get quotes from more than 20 carriers within minutes. You'll pick your terms and your payments to fit your budget. You pick your price. You start the online application immediately. You can even schedule the medical exam to come to you. I've done it. They sent someone to my office. I skipped the phone calls, the paperwork, all the crazy invasive conversations. Goliathlife.com made buying life insurance simple. No hidden fees, no upsells, no hassle. Hell, not even a phone call. Goliathlife.com. Check it out. Get your application in a few easy clicks right now at goliathlife.com. Eric, let's do a few more here. Uh, Michael wants to know, in your opinion, what is the worst gimmick match that WCW had during your time? Huh. Wow. I think the Ron Reese mummy character, what was he called? The Yeti. Yeti. Man, if that's not the worst, I don't know what I'm afraid to even. But a gimmick match. Was. I think they mean like a match. Oh. So like the triple cage or wrestling oh, on the back oh, of a oh, flatbed or Viagra on a pole, Judy Bagwell on a forklift some graveyard things. I think you buried Ric Flair in the desert. I mean, there's some silly stuff. Anything on a pole would be at the top of the list. And Judy Bagwell would probably by a nose win that one. Um, the triple cage. Some of those were just ended up being, you know, really stupid gimmick matches, but it was an attempt. So I don't feel bad about them. But the reason we should feel bad and I feel bad about anything on a pole that would have taken place under my watch would be, you know, you're going into that knowing that it sucks, but you do it anyway. That's just laziness. Anything on a pole is stupid. Anything. Anybody that sits around and says, I got an idea. This is going to be our main event, whether it's a television show or a pay-per-view. And the stakes is we're going to put something on a pole. I'm not talking about a ladder match. It's different. I think it's pretty fucking stupid. So it has to be anything on a pole. But I put Judy Bagwell on a pole right up there with anything. Or on a forklift. Man, that's even weirder. Why would you put somebody in a forklift? You know, the other thing I never liked, I don't know which match this was. I can't remember. But when you put somebody in a cage. Oh, the shark cage above the ring. And he hang, and I think, did we put Liz in a cage once? It used to do JJ oh, but, Dillon all the time. It used to be for managers who were interfering. Yeah, but then now that, to see that I could kind of handle, you know, because there's a reason for it. It's a stupid reason, but it's a reason. On a scale of one to 10, as reasons go, 10 being a great reason, putting a manager in a cage is about a three or a four. Because what you're really doing, if you think about it from a psychological perspective, you're taking this evil, dastardly fucking manager that's always getting in there and messing things up and keeping the baby face from achieving his or her ultimate goal. And when you force that manager in the cage, what are you really doing? You're forcing that piece of garbage to watch what happens to his or her client when they can no longer interfere. It's a mild form of psychological torture. 
So for that reason alone, I would kind of get with it because you're torturing a bad guy. Not physically torturing. We're not talking about waterboarding or pulling their toenails out with pliers or any of that kind of stupid shit. But, you know, putting them in a cage and watching their client be destroyed by the baby face, not having the ability to stop it. I kind of get with that. As long as the, 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 the heel manager that is in the cage deserves it. And there's a story behind it. So I could get with that. But if there's no story, you're just sticking somebody in a cage for the sheer spectacle of it. Then that three goes down to a one. Your boy, big meat wants to know what costs more to license. Best you recall voodoo child or Metallica's seek and destroy voodoo child. Uh, I can't say, I can't say I'm shocked by that. Uh, we'll do one more, uh, and then we'll move on. Uh, Matt wants to know, let's take Hulk Hogan out of the picture. Shawn Michaels gets fired for the curtain call at Madison square garden. He could have been the third man given that he was the WWE champion at the time. Do you think it could have been bigger than what Hulk Hogan did? Absolutely not. Absolutely not even close. Cause it's more about then WWF versus WCW and less about, Oh my God, Hulk Hogan betrayed us. Right. Hulk Hulk Hogan turning heel will go down is one of the most shocking moments in all of professional, not the most, one of the most, like, like if we did a top 10 and I've seen these other, what are the top 10 most shocking moments, you know, in professional wrestling, Hulk Hogan turning heels always going to be on that list. Well, not always eventually. We're all going to die, which is why we like Goliath life insurance, because you need to take care of your business while you still can and protect your families. So when that segment of the audience that experienced Hulk Hogan turning heel are no longer able to vote on such, such a topic, you know, then it'll go away. But right now, you know, I, I think it'll always be in the top 10 and Shawn Michaels, it just wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been shocking. It would have been surprising that he showed up and it would have been a buzz about it. But it wouldn't have been shocking, not like Hulk Hogan turning. You know, you're talking about a character that was the number one babyface character in the industry for 20-some-odd years at that point. This guy was professional wrestling. When you said, hey, I'm a professional wrestler, or when you said, hey, I want to meet a professional wrestler, you talked about Hulk Hogan. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, for crying out loud. And to, for that guy to turn heel, that was a that was a pivot point and a moment in, in history during that era that we're talking about that shocked everybody people cried at ringside kids were crying people were legitimately hot like pissed that knew it was a work but they're still pissed about it because he turned heel how do you achieve that in today's environment it's pretty hard hulk hogan did so i don't think anybody being the third man would have measured up to hulk hogan turning heel well, I hope you guys measure up, uh, when we come to Oshkosh, I can't believe it's almost here, Eric. It feels like we've been talking about this for a while, but, uh, next weekend, man, you and I are going to be at the Oshkosh time community theater for an exclusive live 83 week show. Tickets are just 30 bucks and they're on sale right now at acwwisconsin.com. That's acwwisconsin.com. And don't forget the next day, May 21st, the ACW water wrestling con it's going to have Eric Bischoff, Malachi Black, Dan Housen, The Godfather, and so many more. Pick up your tickets now at acwwisconsin.com. But Eric, that's going to bring us to a close today. Uh, 
I, I thought we might've been able to get more questions in there, but Lord, we got after it there for some, uh, AEW WWE content stuff. Hope you guys had as much fun with that as Eric and I did. But next week we're going to be watching nitro from May 19th, 1997. God, I could watch 97 night shows with you all day long. Can't wait for next week. Me neither. I love it. It's a, it was a very, very good year. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned boys and girls. Lots of fun stuff coming your way and some big announcements right around the corner. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.